Marcus Marcus controls the power and wealth of a vast military and religious empire. Yet one horrific crime threatens to destroy everything in his world. Addled by drugs and grief, Marcus Marcus begins a trans-dimensional journey that will ultimately force him to confront a dark and devastating truth. Chapter 6 Clown with a Bazooka Regardless of their location, my subjects would have been able to view my visit to Triumph Town as it was happening, or they may have preferred to tune in to the broadcasts from any of the thousands of events taking place daily in Glake to celebrate both my anniversary and the festival of Tayene and Firna. Many more people, though, were busy taking part in the parades, feasts, sing-alongs and prayer sessions. Overnight, a prayer of thankful celebration had been printed and distributed. Its contents, duly read and scrutinised, were transformed into an incredible array of cultural events, ranging from mass recitations to innumerable theatrical performances that enacted, with varying degrees of artistry and enthusiasm, the events described in the prayer. Some shows were religious and uplifting, others had a more tragic and moralising tone. Some of the impromptu street performances were of a crude and slapstick nature. The most popular of these were the porno comedies that made great play of the references in A Prayer of Thankful Celebration to grown daughters suckling their mother's breasts and once noble fathers selling their children to degradation. At the precise moment I was embracing my subjects in Triumph Town, a street performance called Captain Errol the Mentor Gives Lessons on Social Skills gathered a packed lunchtime audience a few blocks west of the Royal Palace in Glake City. As the crowd whistled its delight, two figures stepped onto a small wooden dais. One was dressed as Captain Errol in his dress uniform, with broad-brimmed hat and steel-toed capped boots prickled with spikes a wicked smile twisting the actor's scarred face as he fastened on a large red clown's nose. Beside him on the small stage was a young boy, eight or nine years of age. He wore a tin hat and a little khaki suit with the words Demos Guard stenciled on the front. This little soldier also wore a clown nose. He carried a toy pistol in one hand and used the other to make rude gestures to the audience. Captain Errol and his little soldier dragged a large travelling case up onto the stage. From this they managed to conjure all manner of objects, plastic knives and axes, a rubber skull, plastic arms and legs, 
and a large tin bath filled with theatrical blood. The show itself lacked any subtlety. It mostly consisted of the captain and the boy throwing severed body parts at each other. Other than that, the boy's main role was to slip on blood while muttering a disgusted yuck. Captain Errol's big thing was to teeter at the edge of the bath, then with a cry of whoops, fall with a mighty splash into the fake blood. Yet for all its apparent crudity, the show had some very clever sleight-of-hand tricks going on in it. There seemed to be no end to the number of toy weaponry and plastic body parts being removed from the travelling case. The tin bath was always filled to the brim with blood, no matter how often it was spilled over or one of the actors fell in it. But one trick was particularly mesmerising. Each time that Captain Errol clambered out of the bath, dripping from head to toe in blood, he would shake himself like a dog, and the gory mess would spray out from his body in a great scarlet halo, and then vanish. The actor would stand before the audience, panting slightly, raise his arms, and slowly turn around to show that not a drop of blood was left on him. No show, however fascinating, can hold an audience's attention forever if it only repeats a limited number of tricks. Sure enough, after 20 minutes or so, the crowd became restless. Captain Errol held up a finger to shush those that were calling on, Get on with it! Or, Do something different, go on! And pointed at the travelling case. Then he tiptoed across the stage and slowly bent down. All the while the little soldier held a hand to his forehead and looked about as if making sure nobody was spying on the captain's big secret. Behind the little soldier, the captain removed a large bulky object from the travelling case. With a smile he stood and walked to the front of the little stage. Resting his left hand on the boy's head, He braced himself and lugged the object up and onto his own right shoulder. Affectionados of military hardware recognised it as an armour-piercing Maxo-Kill bazooka developed for use by my troops in the former war zone. So powerful was the weapon that its usage was banned within the League Unsundered. Even plastic replicas were hard to come by. Yet the clown on the stage now had an object that not only looked like a very precise replica, but seemed to be as heavy as a real thing. While some of the audience were surprised, none were concerned. One woman shouted out, That's a big one! A remark that led to whistling, cheers and more innuendo-laden commentary. For the most of the show, the two actors had only uttered the occasional grunt, Oops! Or, yuck! But when the crowd quieted down again, the captain, standing with his big boots slightly apart, spoke loud and clear to his little companion. Shall I endeavour to kill the darlings? 
my brave little compadre. Oh no, don't, shouted the boy. Oh yes, do, came the response of the audience. No, please don't, yelled the boy, sounding genuinely terrified. Yes, please do, cried out a thousand men, women and children. Captain Errol fired the bazooka. Seventy-three people were killed outright. Their limbs and guts and scarlet-stained strands of skin scattered over a two-mile radius. Alerted to the outrage, Securitat personnel rushed to the scene. The actors did not resist arrest and were quickly bound in chains. As paramedics tended to the broken and split bodies of the many hundred wounded, Securitat officers argued with a local auger over who had precedent. Unsurprisingly, the auger won the argument. Instead of the killers being taken into custody, they were subjected to an older, sacred tradition. A rumour was sent to a nearby temple, and minutes later the head priestess and her honour guard brought out the instruments of sacrifice. A long table was set up, and a white cloth laid on it. After another hurried talk, a butcher was sent for. Hearing this, the captured child began to scream in fear, but the older actor simply laughed. In Triumph Town, Ifdeck asked me if I could step away from the crowd for a moment. Even as I did so, the joy of the crowd switched to fear. News of the attack was being broadcast across the three zones of humanity. Quickly my vizier explained what had happened and passed on the request that had been made by the officials at the scene. Shaking with shock, I muttered, Yes, let them do it. Then, as the Narn guards laughed and booed, the residents of Triumph Town were called to gather together again. As I stood silent and trembling with rage, I later broadcast with assured people, Ifdeck explained that the crime would be punished fittingly and the pollution of the deed removed from Glake. A screen was set up so that all could witness the execution of the terrorists. I gave permission for parents to remove any children, but to their credit, none did so. Some of my subjects wretched and some fainted, but all remained in the town square to witness the execution. The elder of the two murderers was dispatched first. His chains were removed and his clothes stripped from him. Naked, he was lifted onto the table. His feet were bound with white rope, his wrists with black. The priestess sprinkled grain and wine over his body. The man did not flinch or display any sign of fear. He must have been a true psychopath. For when the priestess beseeched Melkarisha to imprison the murderous soul and Drishika for eternity, the killer grinned and winked. Then the priestess stepped aside to let the butcher do his work. 
Only after his legs, arms and genitals were removed was the killer dispatched with a quick slice to the throat. I gave permission for the child to be spared this suffering. When his turn came, a security officer dispatched him with a bullet. Only after he was killed was a child's body quartered. Thank you for listening to that uh, slightly gruesome chapter 6 of Marcus Marcus and Hurting Heart. Please tell your friends, family and ancient enemies all about the podcast. Subscribe to keep update with new chapters. And you can follow me on Twitter at HaveringRab or check out my website rabfultonstories.weebly.com Stay tuned for more chat.